Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Relation Between Crime and Imprisonment. With the same amount of registered crime, you can have high prison figures and low prison figures, and depending on what you do with it. And that depends on the criminal justice system, including, of course, the legislature. In the years after World War II, rates of imprisonment tended to go down throughout Western Europe and North America. In the last 20 years, the trend has reversed. The United States, to choose only the most dramatic example, has nearly quadrupled its rate of imprisonment since 1970. There has been no comparable increase in the official rate of crime. Why prison rates go up and why they once went down is the subject of tonight's ideas. It's program two in a special ten-part series called Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. It seems like common sense that the rate of imprisonment should be determined by the registered rate of crime. But close study doesn't bear out the connection. Rio de Janeiro and New York have similar rates of crime, and Rio a larger population. But in New York, there are 65,000 prisoners, in Rio, 15,000. In the Netherlands, between 1950 and 1975, recorded crime increased by 300%, while prison numbers dropped by 50%. In the United States, in the early 80s, crime fell while imprisonment soared. One could give other examples. According to Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie, so much intervenes between those events that show up as crime and the numbers eventually held in prison that there is nearly no reasonable or consistent connection. It's very close to a non-existing relationship. There are so many factors that determine the prison figures outside of those situations and those acts that are deplorable. We can see it in my country, had the fantastic high figures of prisoners uh, last century, a century before this. And then it uh, decreased to um, one-fourth of it. And then they have kept it completely stable at that, or nearly completely stable, this whole century. But the registered crime has, of course, increased many, many, many times. The United States figures... They have been stable for so many years, and then suddenly it all exploded. Crime hadn't gone up. In crime, in the meaning of reported acts, um, had not gone up to any extent that can explain the increase. And when you go and ask the population, as they do every year in most industrialized nations, the population do not report anymore to have been victim of crimes than they did before. But something happens in the political process and suddenly uh, the prisons will um, be seen as the um, solution. So by and large, I must, since I've been working with this my whole life, say that it is not fruitful and it is not reasonable to look at the prison figures as reflectors of as a reflection of the crime situation. We must turn it exactly upside down. We have to go to the prison figures, and so we must ask, do we accept to have it like this? 
Does it fit with our ideals of our society? Do we want to have it represented like this? And since it is enormously expensive to have prisons, can we accept it on the expenses level? Couldn't we use all this money for in another and better way? We pay some hundred and fifty dollars, I think. It is here in Norway for each prisoner each day. We could do a lot of good social work uh, here. But the major point is to know, try to create the ground for a real open discussion on when is enough enough. For you in Canada, what should be the right uh, number? What would happen if you reduced your prison population to the half? Probably not very much with regard to what the population considers as criminal activity. My relatively safe guess is that nearly nothing would happen. But you would have more money available for other purposes. And probably in the long run you would got a more civil profile in your society related to the simple fact that of course it is not without influence on human beings to be in prison at least in the canadian situation and the norwegian situation and in more uh, civilized societies where people are expected to come out again we send our children to school and to the universities with some ideas in our head that they shall be slightly changed and why should we not understand that these People get changed when they are put in prison. Of course, they were right, the old who said. Prisons are schools for unwanted behavior or for crime, if you want to say it like that. They are. They get associations. They get cut off from the ordinary societies. Why should we expect this to be a useful way of getting them back to that ordinary society? To cut them off? place them together with other people who also have had trouble with these societies. It's a, such an obvious handicap any prison director is working under if he wants to change those who come there into a good direction, seen from society's point of view. Until recently, the validity of Nils Christie's idea that prisons can do more harm than good was widely recognized. Today, according to important elements of the Reform Party in Canada and nearly all parties in the United States, the test of a politician's mettle is toughness on crime. It's become a sign of moral courage to be willing, as one often hears, to lock people up and throw away the key. But one can find many earlier examples of leaders vaunted for their political courage who understood matters quite differently. Winston Churchill is an outstanding example. In his book, Prisons and the Process of Justice, Andrew Rutherford has pointed to the major reduction in British imprisonment rates that Churchill set in motion before the First World War. Andrew Rutherford is a former assistant governor in the British prison service and a critic of British penal policy. Churchill was a a young Home Secretary in his mid-30s. He was a liberal, part of the um, Campbell-Bannerman, later Asquith, liberal government of the first part of the century. And he very much took the view 
that prison was a black mark on a on a society's honour. Uh, he himself had been in prison uh, as a war correspondent in South Africa. He had written, was in correspondence with Irish Republicans uh, serving prison sentences in in Ireland. He was very close to John Goldsworthy, who had written a, book, uh, a play called Justice, which attacked solitary confinement. So Churchill came at prison as a, as a critic, as a sceptic, and um, on becoming Home Secretary, saw his task to a very large extent in terms of getting people out, particularly young offenders and their serious offenders who turn up, for example, at Pentonville Prison, see a man on the yard, ask for his papers, and on reviewing the case there and then, grant executive clemency. Uh, this didn't go t- down too well with the courts. Uh, but Churchill was wanting to send, as he did, a symbolic message to the courts that enough was enough. And the prison population, in fact, although Churchill himself wasn't Home Secretary for a very long period, in fact, no more than about 18 months, that period did, I think, play an important part in in setting a much more sceptical stance on the part of government. The prison population halved between Churchill's time and, uh, and the early 1920s and stayed at a very low level in England and Wales, right through the interwar years. I mean, the, the rate per 100,000 was round about 30. Uh, it, was, it was lower than the Dutch, who, who later became known as the country that uh, didn't lock many people up. And it was certainly much lower than those countries that were moving in a, in a fascist sort of direction. So during the interwar years, the prison population of England and Wales never went above 11 or 12,000 um, uh, people. In the years after World War II, a number of other countries were also able to reduce their prison numbers. The Netherlands, for example, cut its rate in half. Denmark and Finland also experienced dramatic drops. In Norway, the rate fell by 13% at a stroke when forced labor for vagrant alcoholics was ended in 1970, and it fell further in 1975 when the youth prison system was abolished. One of the leaders in the movement that brought about these changes in Norway is Thomas Matheson, a professor of the sociology of law at the University of Oslo. For more than 25 years, he has been active in an organization called CROM, an association of prisoners, social workers, academics, and other citizens interested in prison reform. He says that one of their proudest achievements has been to expose the prison system to rational scrutiny, and that one of the ways they have done this is by bringing about a dialogue between interested people inside and outside the system. The symbol of this dialogue is an annual retreat undertaken now for 20 years in which everyone involved gets together under congenial circumstances to talk. We organize a yearly conference on criminal and penal policy in the mountains, in a particular place, a particular resort in the mountains, where we always return. We try to make a tradition of it. Across the borders, really, of the various segments, uh, lawyers, researchers, uh, social workers, uh, prison people, prisoners, ex-prisoners, the whole range, really, are represented in a, in a debate, then, between the top and the bottom of the system. Now, in the early days, uh, the top didn't, wasn't there. They refused to come. I mean, the prison department refused to come. 
and the and the prisoners weren't there because they would never give, get furloughs for this purpose. So we had ex-prisoners instead. But gradually this changed. Uh, the mass media pointed to the fact that it was illogical of the of the prison department not to come, and uh, their their policy of furloughs changed. And now then they come in great numbers, and it is a major event really as one pillar of trying to establish, uh, in a sense, what I call an alternative public sphere in the area, meaning by that, that uh, especially as the modern mass media develop in, an, in the direction of entertainment, where we have, uh, do not really have a very good chance to get our principled argumentation, our, our main way of thinking out uh, the idea is to establish an alternative public sphere uh, of discussion, of principled argumentation, relying then on the development of the networks that do exist between people in this general area. And that's why we meet every year, and often you have roughly 50% old-timers and 50% newcomers to the conference. You know? so, you, so you keep the network going, and at the same time bring in new people. I, I think the general philosophy then is that if you get closer to the issues, if you get closer to the people, if you get close to those who are really involved, the families of the prisoners, the prisoners themselves and so on, you begin to understand much more. We see this in the public opinion studies. If you ask people uh, what you think should be done to criminals, people will invariably answer, 80% will answer, put them in prison, just keep them there, lock up and throw away the key. You know, if you then go on and ask more concretely, well, if you have a young person with this and this situation, done this and that, so on and so forth, what would you do? Answers invariably become much more sensible and much more nuanced and much more uh, in the line of, of trying to help a person out of the situation. And in general, this, I think, is a ma major point, And this is what we try to then to do. Thomas Matthiessen and Krom continued to foster rational discussion and mutual understanding in Norway. But he says that in general he finds the arguments for reducing imprisonment harder to make now than when they began. Prison numbers haven't exploded in Norway, as they have in the U.S., but for a number of years they have been inching steadily up. The same has been true in Sweden, the Netherlands, and other former leaders in reducing the numbers in jail. The change began, he says, around 1980. In the widest sense, uh, what happened was a change in the political climate. Uh, with the rise of an ultra-right uh, development, with a major party, which became very, very strong, it became the third largest party in the country towards the end of the 80s. It's that, no longer that. It's, it's much smaller now, but it had a very profound impact uh, throughout the political spectrum not only in the, uh, in the struggle for votes, but also in the actual political thinking. Uh, in kind of neoliberalism invaded uh, good parts of the political spectrum, also the Social Democratic Party. I mean, it's not just, just a question of percentages at polls. It's, it's a question of your thinking. And, and into, into central parts of the Social Democratic Party, a neoliberalist kind of market-oriented thinking became very important. That's the widest context. And then within that context, you had a major change in drug policy. The drug issue became extremely hot, and uh, 
you had through actually through the 70s, beginning in the 70s, and also, but increasingly in the 80s, increased uh, punishment levels for drug-related crime. So you now have a situation where you have a maximum sentence of possible sentence of 21 years for drug-related crime in our penal code. Uh, according to the law, this maximum possibility of 21 years is supposed to be used for uh, organized criminals and so on. In actual practice, it isn't. In actual practice, it is, with a very, very few exceptions, used for ordinary drug peddlers who, who use drugs themselves and sell and buy a little and, uh, and who are then defined as sharks, as it's called in... Uh, drug sharks, as it's called in, literally translated from the Norwegian. And they spend years in prison. Norway's draconian drug policy is echoed throughout much of Europe and North America. Drugs have spread panic and swelled prisons everywhere. Johannes Feist is a professor of criminal law and criminology at the University of Bremen in northern Germany. And he says that in Germany and throughout Western Europe, those convicted of drug crimes are invariably the most substantial segment of the prison population. If you would really do away with our drug laws, then it would cut out in one stroke 20 to 25 percent of the prison population. Just about the same figure given for most of these Western European countries, that is France, Britain, Netherlands, they have about that proportion of people sentenced for drug offenses. Now, of course, we have many more people in prison that are there because of their drug habits, but they have been sentenced for burglary or robbery, and they, for some reason, didn't have any drugs on them because they were committing that robbery or that burglary because they wanted to buy drugs by the proceeds of their offenses. So that figure is very unclear. Prison governors in Germany, their estimates run now between 40 and 60 percent. All the drug people in prison, 40 to 60 percent. It follows from what Johannes Feist says that depenalizing drugs would be the quickest and safest way to radically reduce prison numbers. The idea has support in some surprising places. Prominent American conservatives Milton Friedman and William Buckley have spoken for decriminalization. So have some American judges. But generally speaking, there has been little sustained public discussion about whether the cure has been worse than the crime in drug policy. The primary reason for this state of affairs, in Thomas Matheson's view, is the expanded influence of mass media, particularly television. In the climate created by mass media, he thinks, criminal justice policy escapes rational consideration and becomes instead a commodity traded in the fickle market of public opinion. This is not because he believes media consumption directly forms people's attitudes, but because of the cultural atmosphere he thinks mass media generate. To quote an American media researcher, George Gerbner, the question of the media is really a question of a broad kind of enculturation. It's more like asking, what is the influence of a religion? And he compares, actually, the, the new religion, in quotes, uh, television, with uh, 
Christianity. It's more like asking, what is the influence of Christianity on, on mankind, on, on the Western civilization, on the way we think and act and so on? And there are other researchers who have, who have explicitly compared uh, the new media situation with the church and said that it is a modern kind of church. It has many of the same functions as a church. It comforts you, it uh, brings you heroes and villains, it brings you salvation, uh, if not in, an, in the next world, at least uh, in the sense that you can rest for some hours and have fun uh, while your own life is bleak and, and sad. Uh, it brings people together uh, in, in the family situation. Uh, uh, it gives a sense of communality. We have in common what we see on the television screen. We can talk about it later on or the next morning on, on the job and so on. So it has a number of the same functions as a church. Now, you could compare it to the modern automobile. When the car came around the turn of the century, many people said, well, it's a horse and buggy only without the horse. But it wasn't. It wasn't the horse and buggy without the horse. It was a new thing. It created a new society. It created all of the roads, it created all of the supermarkets, it created all of the housing systems. I mean, it, it had all this tremendous influence. And the same way when television came in the United States after World War II, here somewhat later, many, many people, or at least some people said, well, it's just a newspaper in pictures. It wasn't a newspaper in pictures. It was something entirely new. It was, uh, it was something which influenced fundamentally the whole social system. This is the way I think we have to look at it. and. Uh, in the context of penal policy, then, television has brought us into an entirely new situation where some decades ago, let's say in the 50s, in the 60s, even when in Norway, when Krum was started, when television was here, but not very, uh, a very heavy thing, uh, it was possible to argue in a principled manner. It was possible to argue on the basis of Truthfulness, sincerity, relevance, three criteria of principled argumentation. And to have a hearing, it was possible to argue and at least to some extent be heard. To have the forced labor system for vagrant alcoholics abolished, because it obviously didn't work, because it obviously was, was extremely destructive, because it obviously wasn't treatment at all. And the same thing with the youth prison system. This kind of principled argumentation based on truthfulness, sincerity, and, and relevance is, I would say, in the broad public space or sphere of, of the mass media and television, with a possible exception of the radio. Thank you. Almost impossible. I mean, television does not open for it. Television is pictures with text, but primarily pictures. And you cannot argue that way with pictures. And television also, not only is it pictures, but it's moving pictures in the double sense of the word. And because it is moving pictures, you get the impression that you have the truth there. It happened, just like it's shown. And uh, once you have that kind of situation combined with a market orientation, where the point is to sell television, the prison system can continue to grow. The system can continue to expand. The arguments against it aren't heard. They, they don't come through because of the market rationality rather than the communicative argumentation rationality of our times in the, in the media. 
we could say that the prison system has at least two functions. It has real effects. It does something to you to work as a prison guard. It does something to you to be a prisoner. Mm. And it has then symbolic meanings. I have the impression you're saying television heightens the importance of the symbolic meaning of the prison system and makes it very difficult for you to talk about the reality of the prison system. Precisely. Uh, <clears throat> that's very true. The, the, in a nutshell, you could say that uh, the, uh, the way in which television has developed has made it extremely difficult to speak about the realities of what's going on in the prisons and uh, the, rea the reality of the prisoner's situation and um, increased the symbolic function of the prison. For a long time it has been recognized by sociologists and others that uh, the prison has the symbolic function of um, making those of us who are not in prison all the better, making us appear white. The blacker you can make those who are in the prisons, the whiter you, by inference presumably, are yourself. So this is a very important symbolic function of the prison, to um, divert attention from all of the wrong things you do yourself, or we do ourselves, who are not there, and uh, implant all of the anger on the few, who, or relatively few, who are in the prison system. And that particular symbolic function, giving us the good feeling of being all the whiter as the blackness of those who are inside increases, uh, that symbolic function is dramatically increased with the modern mass media situation because this is precisely the picture which is given. A picture of the crook without the conscience, without the culture, who is just a criminal, nothing else but a criminal. He's all 100% criminal. That particular picture is being enhanced and again then makes for principled argumentation, trying to tell people how, how, how is really life in the prison, how, what are they actually like? all the more difficult. And that is the main problem, really. Uh, and it's so supportive to people's uh, stereotypes and so consolidating for the prison system and makes it so difficult to argue in that public space for limiting growth of prisons and even reducing the use of prison and so on. The difficulty that Thomas Matheson has faced in Norway has also been noted by an English observer Andrew Rutherford. He spoke earlier about the reduction Winston Churchill helped to effect in the British rate of imprisonment. By custom, Rutherford says, British criminal justice policy has been nonpartisan. Politicians have not taken advantage of each other on the issue, and the civil service has taken a leading role in the formation of policy. This continued to be true into the late 1980s, when the Home Secretary, Douglas Hurd, drew on his own department's research to argue that prisons, in his words, are an expensive way of making bad people worse. During the period that Heard was in office, there was a 13% reduction in British rates of imprisonment. Then, in 1991, the government introduced a new Criminal Justice Act that put forward measures to sustain this trend. The Labour Party attacked. The Tories divided on the issue and the act was eventually gutted. 
Today, Andrew Rutherford says, Britain appears to be in a new world. Criminal policy is much less, if you like, likely to be determined at the level of elites within a, within a society. In this sense, I would agree with Nils Christie, who says that criminal policy has become a, a commodity. It can be sold to the public at large by politicians and, um, and others, and it therefore becomes much more difficult for politicians, perhaps, to play a leadership role. I mean, you do see it, of course, in some instances. You certainly see it in Britain, and perhaps in Canada too, with politicians saying with reference to the death penalty, that it has no place in a civilised society, even though great majorities, apparently, according to opinion polls, would like its restoration. So in some areas, in some isolated areas, the old elitist approach is maintained. But with reference to criminal policy as a whole, what we've seen in Britain since Mr Hurd left office in October 1989 is a, is a sense among politicians that this issue is too big and too volatile, too potentially damaging but also potentially fruitful to be left in the hands of the elites and that it can be manipulated and used in a way that can gain a fair degree of uh, political mileage. You know, the um, genie is out of the bottle now and it may be very difficult to put back at this particular point. And we've certainly seen no evidence in Britain that the Labour Party... Uh, is any more interested than the Conservative Party in returning to criminal policy being a sort of backstage, behind-the-scenes operation where senior politicians and officials um, make it up in what they regard to be the public interest. It seems to me now to be something that's going to be much more determined by whim and circumstance and um, various attempts to gauge public opinion than it ever has been up until this point. Why do you think this has happened? It's happened, I think, largely because politicians feel that this is an issue on which they can be immensely vulnerable and that some of the protections around it have been removed. I think when there was a, a political consensus, at least among the major political parties, that this issue was not one for, if you like, political milking, the sort of consensus that uh, has existed in Britain uh, in recent years over Northern Ireland, which has not been used as a as a political football, um, I think did did prevail with reference to criminal policy for some time. I think there was a, a distrust among politicians about public instincts on these issues. What has happened more recently, I think, is that um, politicians are now saying, well, maybe uh, maybe we've neglected those public instincts for too long. You know, we ought to be listening to what, what the people uh, are saying to us, that we, we're out of touch with the real uh, victims of, uh, of crime. The Labour Party, for example, are saying many of the victims of crime are, are poor people, are their natural constituents, and that um, you know, Labour is on, on the side of those sorts of victims, and so on and so forth. So I think it's going to be, it's not impossible, but it's going to be difficult to return criminal policy to the calmer and uh, more reflective waters that we have seen from time to time. The changed climate which both Andrew Rutherford and Thomas Matheson have been talking about is expressed in what might be called a popularization or even democratization of crime policy. It can be observed throughout the Western world, 
despite considerable national variation. Prison rates nearly everywhere are rising. The influence of elites on criminal justice policy has weakened. The influence of public opinion has grown stronger. A simplified view of crime as a primarily moral problem has driven out more complex understandings of its social origins. And a certain caution about imprisonment seems to have faded from the minds of policymakers as the cultural memory of gulags and concentration camps has grown dimmer. Sociologist Sigmund Baumann sees these phenomena in the broader context of a transfer of authority and legitimacy from the state to the market. He's a native of Poland and an emeritus professor at the University of Leeds in northern England, where we met in the fall of 1995. In a series of recent books, Intimations of Postmodernity, Postmodern Ethics, and most recently, Life in Fragments, Professor Bauman has drawn a portrait of an emerging postmodern order that he thinks is distinctively different from the modern order that preceded it. In the modern era, he says, the coordination of society was the task of the state. The state had an obligation to all of its citizens, and it was understood that even those who might from time to time belong to what Marx called the reserve army of the unemployed would still be needed again in future. Today, in his view, things have changed. Economies now grow without requiring more labor. Technical progress means fewer jobs rather than more. And the reserve army of the unemployed has been replaced by a new class of redundant people. The state, meanwhile, is gradually abdicating its responsibility for the ordering of society. Contemporary people, Bauman says, derive their social discipline not from their integration in the state, but from their participation in commercial markets. Most of us, people who can actually afford it, are integrated into society, are playing the rules by uh, the game by the rules, uh, because we are seduced by the market opportunities. Uh, the major means in relation to the majority of the population of integrating society today is market seduction. Very seductive offers, very attractive, very alluring offers made by the market opportunities. Opportunities beckon, and in order to grasp them, you have to strain yourself, you have to apply effective means of action in order to achieve what you want. However, the problem of integrating through seduction, if it is coupled, with the redundancy of a growing part of the potential labor force leads to another consequence which was not predicted by anyone, not planned, namely that uh, a growing part, a minority, but a growing minority of the population cannot be so integrated by seduction, simply because in order to be able to be integrated by seduction, you have to have means. You have to be a fully-fledged consumer. If you lack the means, which uh, open you the gates of the supermarket, uh, you know, which allow you to uh, spend your holiday in Edmonton super, super, supermarket, then, of course, you can't be integrated to society, into society into the orderly society via seduction. 
you are immune to seduction, not by your fault, not because of lack of uh, willing, but simply because of the lack of means. If that is the case, then the seduction of the majority of the population by market uh, uh, allurements has to be supplemented by the suppression of the other part of the population, of those redundant, imperfect consumers, people who, who are of no visible utility, no visible use from the point of view of the circulation of commodities, from the point of view of the consumer market. They are not potential consumers, and therefore there is no possible use to which they could be put. They can't be accommodated as producers, and they are useless as consumers. I see in that, I see the uh, major uh, social-political cause of this uh, appallingly fast-growing number of people who come, who are treated by the law as criminal elements. According to the latest statistics in the United States of America, four and a half billion of people are either in prison or on probation or are expecting trial. Four and a half billion is the uh, number almost equal to the number of Americans who are attending colleges and universities. It's very, I, I know that there is no direct connection between the two, but nevertheless, uh, it makes, uh, it's a good for metaphorical thinking, for visualizing the process of polarization in society. Polarization in society. On the one pole, you have this thriving um, part of the population using the opportunities offered by the new consumer market economy extremely attractive, extremely pleasant, extremely, uh, extremely satisfying, gratifying. On the other hand, you have these waste products of the same development, which has to be disposed of. You can consider the criminal system, punishment system, as a sort of a sewage pipes, sewage gutters, uh, sewage system of society in which the waste products are channeled. The same horrible image was used by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. He speaks of the successive waves of imprisonment in the Soviet Union under the title The History of Our Sewage Disposal System. Today, the term refers not to the ideological enemies that Stalin's regime imprisoned, but to those who are seen as social burdens. The idea that those in need of state aid are burdens, in Zygmunt Bauman's view, represents a profound change in the majority's view of the state. The state which took shape after World War II was, broadly speaking, a welfare state, even where it wasn't explicitly given that name. It was designed as what Bauman calls an enabling institution, an idea preserved in the term social safety net. It would catch you if you fell, but its purpose was to allow you to aspire to freedom and independence. Its benefits were universal. Today it is seen more and more not as a means to freedom, but as an entitlement to permanent crippling dependence. And as such, it no longer appeals to what political scientists call the median voter, the one who ultimately makes a majority. A welfare state in its original form was based unconsciously on this idea of median voter. 
more than half of the population used it. Virtually every measure which was uh, provided by the traditional welfare state in the field in the field of national health, in education, uh, in the field, say, of child benefits, was meant for the majority of the population, so that community was seen as a sort of collective insurance company. We are all paying, but we are all insured. What is happening slowly, gradually, very often imperceptibly, is transferring virtually every service to the so-called means testing, which means that only those people who can't afford to buy the service on the market will use it. But that means that the median voter is no more interested in keeping it alive, you know. Uh, instead of seeing community as the collective insurance company, he sees community as a drain on the taxpayer money. I am paying taxes for your benefits. It is not that we all contribute for our joint benefits, but I am paying for your dole, and then if someone comes and tells me that you need my tax money, because you are lazy, because you are potentially criminal, because you are drug addict, because you don't strain yourself properly, because you are not a decent person, then I will listen very carefully because somehow it explains my suffering, you know, why I should pay for your benefits. Now, there is a, if there is a magic point in the history of the welfare state, I would say the magic point is precisely here when this median voter is bypassed when suddenly it is my money against your benefits situation emerging. It is emerging slowly, here and there, step by step, unconnected steps. For example, in Britain, until now, child benefit is paid to everybody, whatever is the income. Because child is important and child should be provided for, whatever is the situation of the parents. And because it is paid to everybody, no one can imagine to abolish it. Because the middle classes, you know, the majority of the population will object. Everybody benefits, right? But uh, if, it, uh, if it is agreed that the means testing is applied to child benefit and only people who are below certain level of income will get it, People are arguing, arguing, introducing means testing here in terms of targeting the benefits where they are needed. But once that is done, then there will be much, much lesser resistance against first cutting it down to the bare bones and in the longer perspective probably abolishing it altogether. John Kenny's uh, Galbraith wrote this book about contended majority. You probably read it. It's a very important book. He said that in our democratic society, with this polarization among seduced and suppressed, the democratic majority may simply vote out the minority interests quite freely. Majority is contended with the market situation. They swim in the sea quite nicely, thank you. And therefore, the minority interest seem to be, but by minority interest I mean in this case particularly the interests of impoverished people who are unable to 
get their living through the normal economic structure. Now, this minority uh, uh, interests appear to be purely and simply burdens. In the book to which Sigmund Baumann refers, John Kenneth Galbraith describes what he calls the culture of contentment, which is also the book's name. This is the culture of those who benefit from the current order and who make a virtue of their good fortune. A classic text of this culture, according to Galbraith, is Charles Murray's Losing Ground, with its convenient argument that people are not on welfare because they are poor, but rather that they are poor because they are on welfare, which keeps them in a state of slackness and dependency. The state is generally viewed negatively, and taxation is denounced as an improper way of coordinating social and economic policy. But curiously, Galbraith says, there are certain residual state functions that are still viewed with enthusiasm, and the first amongst them is the repression of crime, for which the contented are willing to write the government a blank check. Sigmund Baumann sees this culture at work in the current cry for law and order. What is left of the state is what is called the preservation of law and order. And law and order means fighting uh, the margins. Law and order is not a major problem of ma- majority. Major- majority is always orderly because uh, the way of be- majority behaving sets the standards of order. So, in fact, by definition, majority is orderly. So the question of law and order is always the question of the margins. Now, um, the uh, unemployed, the poor, presented themselves in the older perspective to the state as the, mostly the problem of regenerating, rehabilitating, preparing them to take back their economic and military role in society. But now, since no one is expecting them to take back this role in society, they appear to the state mostly as the problem of law and order. Prison provides a way of managing these unwanted people and at the same time allows a profitable crime control industry to be erected on their backs, the only job, in a sense, which society allows those who have become redundant. It's expensive. Critics have remarked forever that if only prisoners could get their hands on the money spent imprisoning them, they could all join the middle class. But then, as Zygmunt Bauman points out, prisons have a crucially important symbolic function as well. You and me who are seduced by the consumer market, we are deeply in our subconscious, full of fear, because we may stumble, you know, you you have a stable job today, you may lose it tomorrow. Uh, Jobs are fast disappearing, redundancy is not just a matter of the working class, it is also the fate of quite a few middle class people, right? Company directors even become uh, redundant time and again. So... um, Even among satisfied consumers, uh, there is this underlying fear that this sort of game is very dangerous. It is a risky game. Uh, So perhaps there's some temptation to settle for more quiet life, you know, uh, to surrender some of the benefits in order to get some more security. Now, uh, in order to uh, push away these uh, seditious ideas like tranquility, certain uh, orderly life and so on, 
you should be shown what the alternative is. And the alternative is, you know, the reality of the prisons. The reality is the dregs of society. The alternative is to be channeled into the gutters and so on. Now, to make the alternative too awful to contemplate, really, and that will make the uh, risky and very often unpleasant life of the uh, market consumer more endurable. If you know what the alternative is, then the problems you encounter in your own consumer life will seem somehow, somehow less uh, repulsive. I am already a pensioner, so I don't mind so much, but uh, younger there will be people who are still in employment, still earn their living, right, uh, month by month and day by day. They have these inner demons. Uh, there is a price to be paid for this allurement of consumer society, the uncertainty of daily existence, right? And um, the inner demons whispers into your ear. Uh, the inner demon whispers that, uh, well, perhaps uh, uh, a little bit older car, perhaps, you know, not the latest uh, brand of the computer, but instead, instead a stable job, for example, right? Now, that's a temptation, quite a real one, and quite a few people could be lending their ears willingly to this sort of uh, proposal, which would be disastrous to the economy as it is working today, because it can work only on the assumption of the instant obsoleteness of every commodity, so that it could be replaced by another one. That's how it works, you know, how the, how the wheels rotate. So these inner demons must be exercised, burned in effigy, as I say, burned in effigy. How could you burn them in effigy? By burning the embodiments, the symbols of the alternative. Those people who don't play the consumer game. What's happening to them? Look, well, what is happening to them? They go to Alabama prison in the desert, you know. They are, they are uh, chained into gangs, you know. They are, they are just uh, breaking stones. That's what they are doing. Sigmund Baumann's account of the snug fit between the expanding prison and the new economic order stresses the weakening of the positive functions of the state and the strengthening of its negative repressive function. In this sense, he holds out a fairly bleak prospect. But there's another more hopeful aspect to his account of the emerging postmodern order, which I'd like to briefly summarize as a conclusion to tonight's program. According to Baumann, the state no longer possesses what he calls an ethical monopoly. It has lost it by ceding the task of coordinating society to the market. But the legitimacy of the prison as an institution is rooted in this monopoly. Prison sentences translate the diverse acts that constitute crime into a uniform language. Whatever has happened, a universal standard can be applied in assigning punishment. But diversity is the fundamental postmodern characteristic. So how will a single universal standard of punishment be maintained when every other universal standard is faltering? A postmodern view, according to Baumann and others, would tend to reinsert crime into its full context and eliminate the automatic reduction to a common denominator. 
The prison certainly remains a convenient warehouse for unwanted people, but its moral authority on this account is very much weakened. Even as its power seems to grow, its counterproductivity as an institution becomes more obvious. This opens a space for experimentation with alternatives, and it's with these alternatives that I'll be concerned in subsequent programs. On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to the second program in a ten-part series called Prison and Its Alternatives. The series is based on a conference on prison growth organized by Norwegian criminologist Niels Christie and held in Oslo in April of 1995. The series was prepared by David Cayley. Production assistant for the series is Gail Brownell. Technical operations were by Lorne Tulk. The producer was Alison Moss. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can order the entire series of 10 for $25 plus GST. Send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We also have a reading list for the series. It's free. Just write to us at Ideas at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintler. Thank you.